Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation's uh, Lehrman Auditorium. I'll just ask you to please make sure your phone is on silent. Um, and as you listen to the speakers, be formulating questions, because we'll be saving lots of time at the end of today's uh, presentation for your questions. Uh, we're here today to highlight a new organization uh, titled Them Before Us, dedicated to defending a child's right to his or her mother and father. Recent developments in our law and culture have tended to place the desires of adults over the needs or rights of children, and Them Before Us intends to respond. According to their mission statement, Them Before Us exists to advance social policies and attitudes that encourage adults to actively respect the rights of children, rather than expecting children to sacrifice their fundamental rights for the sake of adult desires. And so joining us today is the founder and director of Them Before Us, and two advisors. So first, we'll hear a few words about the need for this new group and the work that they intend to do from Katie Faust, uh, the founder and director of Them Before Us. Katie did her undergraduate studies in political science and Asian studies at St. Olaf College and then received a Fulbright scholarship to Taiwan. In 2012, Katie began writing about marriage and children, and her articles have appeared in the USA Today, Public Discourse, and The Federalist. Katie has also filed two amicus briefs uh, with the Supreme Court uh, opposing the redefinition of marriage. Next, we'll hear from Melissa Michella, who will say a few words about why biological relationships matter and why parents have duties to their children and how new technologies threaten these relationships and undermine these duties. Melissa is an assistant professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America and an assistant professor of medical ethics at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Her book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education, and Children's Autonomy was published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. She graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College, received a licentiate in philosophy summa cum laude from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome, and received her PhD in political philosophy from Princeton University. She's the underachiever on the panel. <laughs> Finally, Jeff will explore trends in law, revealing a new de-sexed anthropology and the significant alterations uh, this will bring to our historic family law. Jeff serves as senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he devotes his efforts to strategic research and initiative development. Jeff earned his JD with honors from Regent University School of Law, and he joined ADF in 2005. He's litigated religious liberty and free speech cases in federal and state trial and appellate courts. And prior to joining ADF, he was in private practice with an emphasis on criminal defense litigation and public interest constitutional practice. Uh, so please join me in welcoming today's panel. Thanks for coming, and many thanks to everyone at the Heritage who made this possible. Um, quick story about why I'm here. Um, I started blogging about marriage and family in 2012, um, right after Obama evolved on the issue of gay marriage, and I felt like everybody in my world and in media felt that they were now free to kind of play the bigot card, that now the only possible motivation for being against gay marriage was bigotry. Um, and that was difficult for, I know a lot of Americans, and certainly for me, because I have gay and lesbian family and friends, um, like probably like all of you as well. Um, but I understood that marriage was the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known. Um, and I didn't want to get into this because I like keeping my friends. Um, but when the other side started talking about um, children and using children to support their cause, um, in essence saying, you know, kids don't care if they lose a mother or father to be in this household, that's when I felt like I needed to speak up. 
um, because I had worked with kids for a couple decades. And when you get kids alone and they talk about the things that break their hearts the most, it is always about their parents. It's always about how they lost a relationship with their mom or dad or they divorced or they, their dad might live in the same home, but he's too distant and they desperately want a deeper connection because being known and loved by the two people responsible for your existence is one of the most universal human longings. And I had seen and dealt with the fallout of parents prioritizing their own desires above those needs of their kids for so long. And that's what got me into this, is when the other side started spinning the narrative that, um, that kids are okay losing one or both. So um, the other reason... Um, I started blogging about this is my mom has been in a relationship with another woman for 30 years. After my parents divorced, um, my dad dated and remarried and my mom fell in love with one woman and they've been together ever since. Um, I'm not raised by two moms. My mom is my mom. Her partner is my friend. And so the other thing I wanted to communicate when I started writing about this is that you can and should be the most loving person in the lives of your gay family and friends. And you must defend marriage because it's actually a children's rights issue. So that's what got me into this. Um, and arguing on the internet for a couple of years will teach you a lot about how you should do things differently. And so as we went through that marriage battle, here's the things that I learned. Um, number one, story is key. The other side did not have the best statistics or research or arguments but they had the best stories. They humanized their side of the debate. And we couldn't do that. We responded with kind of cold statistics a lot of the time. The problem is that it's really hard to get the stories of kids who have two moms or two dads or who are donor conceived or even kids who have gone through divorce because it's too relationally expensive for them to come out and say, it was really hard when I watched the planes fly overhead with my two moms in the house and every time a plane went over the top of me, I wondered, is my dad on that plane? Right, getting kids to say that, especially under their real name, they're putting everything on the line, right? They're, they're jeopardizing their closest relationships to tell the truth. Um, but that's what we were missing, right? They told a better story than we did. Next, we spent so much time talking about adults and what adults wanted, but it's kids who are the true victims when we get policy wrong. And so we needed to major on kids and their rights and their needs um, instead of being obsessively focused on what adults want. They are the real victims of the marriage debate when we get it wrong. And finally, hypocrisy killed us. It really did. Those people who came out of the woodwork and said, well, marriage is really about the rights and needs of children, and we're really concerned about that. Well, the other side, like, really? Because I don't actually see you like beating the drum over the heterosexual couples who are using sperm donors. Why aren't you so concerned about that? Where were you in you know, the era of no-fault divorce when that was on the rise? Do you care about those kids? Why aren't you campaigning about that? And you know what? They are right. They were right. And I get it. Like You don't want to listen to people who are children's rights advocates who are only protecting certain kids. So... And they all deserve protection, right? All the kids who are suffering fallout because adults are prioritizing their own desires over what kids actually need, they need a voice in this debate. So we are doing something new. And that is we are going to look at every issue about family structure from the child's perspective. First, we are going to educate people on, on the fact that children actually have nearly recognized rights to both of their biological parents it's outlined in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's like right up there next to their right not to be killed. Next is right to both of their parents because it's identity constituting, as we're going to hear from Melissa. Um, we use story to highlight the true victims, and we are going to critique every practice that threatens those rights. And I tell people, you know, give me enough time and I'll piss off every adult group in the room, right? <laughs> Nobody gets a pass when we're doing this right. Every adult, single, married, gay, straight, every adult has to conform to the rights of kids. And if we don't, we are not going to be able to solve any of the major problems we're facing as a society, right? Look at all of the statistics. Look at any issue that you care about, incarceration rates, teen suicide, homelessness, drug use, behavioral issues. You get right down to the heart of it. 
and the bulk of the kids who make up those statistics have lost a relationship with their mother or father or suffered some kind of family breakdown. And the state tries what it can to make that up with giant programs and bigger prisons and more high school counselors. But none of those people can love a child, right? It's the parents that do that. And when they don't get the love of their mother, the love of their father, and stability, they starve. They emotionally starve. And then we, as a society, pay the price, and their heart breaks. So in essence, let me just tell you, in a nutshell, what Them Before Us is going to do. We are going to launch a global children's rights movement, and we are going to take over every part of this conversation when it comes to marriage and parenthood and reproductive technologies. That anytime any of these things are discussed, primarily, we're going to consider the rights of the child. We're going to put their stories right in front of any legislature that seeks to redefine parenthood or normalize motherlessness or fatherlessness or treat children as a commodity by legalizing commercial surrogacy. And they're going to have to look in the face of a kid who's lived it. And we're going to tell them that that kid's story and that kid's life and that kid's rights should be primarily weighed as they consider what to do. And we need to take all of this wealth of knowledge that these two are going to share, and we need to get into the hands of the 16-year-old girls scrolling through Instagram. Because these realities need to inform her choices, too. And until we're going to do, we need to do it all. We need to do it all. We need to change hearts, and we need to change laws. And we can't do that unless we humanize our perspective when we get that kids are the victims when we do this wrong. So, um, and finally, I will say, this global children's rights movement that we are launching, it is not a movement that pits gays against straights or atheists against Christians. Already on our leadership and our ambassador and our staff, we have same-sex attracted, we have straights, we've got atheists, very zealous atheists. Um, we've got Mormons and Catholics and um, a pastor's wife. You know, I'm the token pastor's wife. Um, and we've got it all. And you know what? We are completely unified in this mission. And, and we say, you know, adults, we don't care where you live, how you identify. If you're willing to lose friends for the sake of fighting for children's rights, you're one of us. So that's the idea, is we put them, the children, before us, the adults. And it's all responsible adults on this side who are willing to battle for children's rights. You belong with us. And that is a coalition that can go global and I think really change the narrative on marriage and family and parenthood. So I'm glad you're here and I'm going to pass the mic on. So thanks so much, um, Katie and Ryan and everybody at um, Heritage for putting this on. Um, I only have a few minutes, so I'm going to focus on one specific aspect of what Katie talked about, which is the issue of reproductive technologies and, in a particular way, how uh, called third-party assisted reproduction, the use of donor egg or sperm in the conception of a child, violates the rights of a child to a relationship uh, with both of their biological parents. And I want to provide some of the foundations for the claim that these biological parent-child ties really do matter for the well-being of children. So why do biological origins matter? Right? Some people will say it's just some DNA, it's, it's just an egg, it's just a sperm, you know, who cares uh, which egg or which sperm was involved in conceiving you when you know, it's the parents who raised you that matter. And of course, the parents who raised you do matter and matter deeply, whether or not they're your biological parents. But uh, the biological parents matter in ways that can't be uh, replaced because we are embodied beings. Our bodies are essential to who we are. And our biological identity is an important part of our overall personal identity. Um, and that's why knowing our biological origins helps to make sense of who we are. And those who don't know their biological origins or don't have a relationship with those uh, who kind of connect them to their biological origins are lacking in something important. And they feel that and, and they express that when you ask donor-conceived uh, persons about their 
experience. I mean, if you, if you think about it, there's so many things in life that shape who we are. You know, the people who raised us, where we were born, where we grew up, where we were educated, the friends that we have, you know, the profession that we chose, all sorts of things, right? Uh, our religion, they influence us very deeply. But any of those things or all of those things could change and we would still be fundamentally the same person. Different in many ways, but still the same person, right? But if a different egg or a different sperm were used in our conception, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be me it wouldn't be you it would be a totally different person we wouldn't exist right so that's the one thing that absolutely cannot change if i'm going to be me everything else could change i'd be me i'd be a slightly different me but i'd still be me so that's why this is this permanent link that exists between biological parents and their children that matters the other things matter too but this is something that uh, is so deep that uh, we can't forget about the importance for children, right? There's this permanent identity-defining link between genetic parents and their children, which means that in donor conception cases, the donor is not no one to the donor-conceived child, as, you know, sometimes the parents who raise the child will, will want to say, well, that, that person's no one to you, right? That's just a, a biological donor, right? That, that doesn't mean anything. But the donor is a very specific someone that links that person to life and to identity in a deep and permanent way. Uh, and this is, again, what a lot of donor-conceived individuals have expressed. Um, Olivia Pratton from Canada says, I think of myself as a puzzle. The only picture I have ever known is half complete. And Tom Ellis from the UK says, the stranger who helped bring me into the world and who may never want to meet or know me is important to me, but he is a part of me. And without him, I will never feel completely whole. So, you know, how do we make sense of this at a kind of deeper level, right? What's going on that makes the biological parent responsible for um, the biological child, right? Again, it seems like, oh, it's just this biological tie. You know, why does that necessarily matter, right? It seems like it could just be accidental. But I think that... Um, the key idea here is that children, sorry for the typo there, children have a right to the knowledge and love of their biological parents, which corresponds to the biological parents' special obligations to their children. So what I want to briefly argue is that the existence of that biological tie just in itself gives rise to a special obligation of the parents to love and usually uh, as an expression of that love to raise their uh, their own biological children. So the, the ethical premise in my argument here, which is very widely shared and is what everybody does in practice, is the idea that personal relationships give rise to special responsibilities for the well-being of others. Right? We have limited time, limited energy, limited resources. When it comes to prioritizing our use of time, energy, and resources for the benefit of others, we very naturally and rightly prioritize those who are closest to us, right? Our family, our friends, our colleagues, right? It depends on the, the responsibilities and ties that we have. We are gonna spend a disproportionate amount of our resources on those who are close to us. And, and that's right. And I think uh, the reason for that in part is that when we have a personal relationship with somebody, that creates a personal dependency, that creates, in a sense, needs that only the person with whom you're in a relationship can meet for you. And that means that those obligations that the person has to you are non-transferable. They can't bring somebody else to sort of fill in, right? So if you think about uh, a wife uh, being invited out to a romantic dinner by her husband, her husband can't just call, you know, an hour before and say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Something really important came up at work. Um, so I'm not going to be able to make it, but I'm going to send my secretary or I'm going to send, um, you know, one of my colleagues. And actually, he's a lot more fun than I am. And he'll buy you whatever you want for dinner. He'll be great company, right? That, that doesn't work. Now, the, the husband may have a, a legitimate excuse for failing to show up at the dinner. There could be something really serious that's going on. But the point is that he can't just say, well, I, I transfer that obligation to, to somebody else because it's a personal obligation. It's non-transferable. 
Either he has to do it or he has to have a good excuse or not, but not do it, right? It, it's left unfulfilled. And so the same thing uh, happens with biological parents and their children. There's this relationship between biological parent and child that is permanent and identity constituting, which means that the love of the biological parents is both important and irreplaceable to children in just the same way as, but an even stronger, you know, the presence of the husband at the dinner is irreplaceable to the wife, right? Somebody else can't stand in for that. And when you think about the most sort of irreplaceable thing that a person can do for another person when they're in a personal relationship, it's to show appropriate love, right? That's something that you can't, nobody else can do it for you, right? You could have lots of wonderful relationships, lots of people who love you appropriately, but if one person that's important to you is not loving you appropriately, that hurts. You know, you could have an important milestone in your life and everybody calls you and congratulates you, but your mom forgets about it. That hurts, right? Um, or your best friend forgets about it. That hurts because these people are in a personal relationship with you. Their love is not replaceable, no matter how well loved you are by others. And so that's the same with biological parents and their children. Even if a child is very well loved by other parents who are raising them, the fact that the biological parent is absent is typically taken by the child to mean my biological parents didn't love me enough to raise me. Um, that may or may not be an accurate interpretation, and we'll look at the case of adoption in a second. Um, but psychologically, that is the sort of instinct that a child has. And just to sort of lend plausibility to the, the philosophical argument, let me just summarize a few studies on this. So there's a 2005 study of um, donor-conceived 12 to 17-year-olds uh, from 29 households in which over 80% said that they were likely to request the donor's identity and pursue contact, many saying they wanted to learn more about him in order to learn more about themselves. Similarly, a 2013 study with uh, 759 respondents said uh, donor offspring view the donor as a whole person rather than as simple genetic material. He can know you, he has looks, he can teach you about yourself. They also believe that the donor should act on his humanity. He should know about you and not remain an anonymous genetic contributor. So they feel that their donor father has an obligation to them and should sort of step up to that. Uh, the study that was done by the Institute for American Values um, looking at uh, about 500 donor-conceived adults from the U.S. and compared them with a similar number of adopted uh, children and those raised by biological parents found that donor-conceived children are more confused about identity and more isolated from their families than those raised by their biological parents or adoptive parents, so they fared the worst of the three. Nearly two-thirds of the respondents agreed with the phrase, my sperm donor is half of who I am. 45% said the circumstances of my conception bother me. 25% think about donor conception at least once a day, and almost half think about it several times a week. 50% say it makes them feel sad to see friends with their biological fathers. Uh, and then the largest study to date from 2011 uh, looks at 741 respondents ages 9 to 40, um, 82% of those respondents indicated a desire to someday be in contact with the donor. The main reasons were things like curiosity about the donor's looks, desire for information about um, ancestry and medical history, and again, indicating this personal element so that the donor can learn about them. Right? They wanted that relationship, that back and forth. Many uh, wanted to establish a relationship with the donor. The study also found that Secrecy and tension very often exists regarding the child's curiosity about the donor or search for the donor. And many reported feelings of um, confusion related to their conception, especially if they were told at later ages. So a few uh, examples of feelings that they reported. One said, I'm relieved for an explanation when they found out uh, that they were donor conceived for why I felt like a misfit. Uh, it makes me angry that I'm denied the basic right of knowing who my father was and what ethnicity I am. I'm curious as to what my biological father is like. Do I have any siblings? What were his parents like? 
The man who raised me is still my dad, but I'm pissed off. I'm missing half of my genetic medical history. Right? So again, a variety of responses, but a lot of them indicating anger and sadness and confusion. Now, just to clarify how this differs from adoption, now there are difficulties in both situations for children um, because of the separation from one or both biological parents, and that's you know, well known psychologically. Uh, but in adoption, the big difference is that the separation from the biological parent is not intentional and premeditated. Uh, and therefore, it's not necessarily, it could be, but it's not necessarily a sign of indifference or rejection on the part of the biological parents. Um, it could be a sign that the biological parents loved the child so much that though they really wanted to raise the child, realized that they were in no, circum no situation to be able to do so in a decent way, and so allowed others who were more competent and capable of doing that to raise that child, right? But that, um, in that case, right, could be a sign of love rather than a sign of rejection. Um, and the child can later on come to understand that. That's one of the things that have now been shown about open adoption arrangements which can often be really healing for children is that they can come to find out the reasons why um, the biological parents did not raise them and come to understand that that was a decision made out of love, not out of indifference or rejection. But again, by contrast, in donor conception, there's a premeditated cho choice to create the non-ideal circumstances for the child, right? And one donor-conceived child put it very strongly saying, with adoption, you're making the best of the raw deal that life dealt a child. With donor conception, you're creating that raw deal, right? Again, a, a very big difference. So just some questions to consider in conclusion, right, is forbidding donor anonymity, which is something that a lot of countries uh, have done in Europe, in Australia, uh, parts of Australia, but is that really enough, right? That's a, a step. But is that enough? Um, children have a right not just to knowledge of their genetic parents and medical history, but also to the love of those parents. And you know, should the parent's desire for a genetically related child trump the child's desire to the love of his or her genetic parents? I think them before us has a very clear answer to that, and that is no. And so finally, to think you know, maybe adoption should be promoted and facilitated as a more child-centered alternative. Again, here, not to say that adoption is a panacea or that we should sort of promote uh, irresponsibility, right, um, in having children that you're not willing to, to raise. But again, the point here is instead of focusing on so much on parents who want to have a genetic child at whatever cost to the child, right, in ways that have a, a cost to the child, to think about another option that channels the natural desire of couples to sort of extend their marital love into raising a family and open their family, right, to the next generation, to channel that into child-centered uh, options, right, in order to, to love a child that already exists and that needs their parental love, instead of creating a child in ways that are going to cut that child off from part of their biological ancestry. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> good afternoon. Um, by way of general observation on the law of the family, and this won't surprise you, it is hurtling downward. Um, the family, which is that natural community and symbol of integration, is being redesigned in law to conform to the precepts of disintegration that are characterizing our era. And the conceptual abominations in the law and in the academic literature abound, too many to recite, um, certainly to analyze here. But I'll mention quickly the following perfectly consistent group of commitments that are relevant to today's uh, panel discussion that are ascending and in some quarters are controlling. For instance, that male and female are categories of irrelevance to marriage, to family, and to the design of human community itself. Also, that the objective invisible composition of the human body in its reproductive dimension is a mere brute biological or technological fact that has no relevance or meaning to the identity of the individual human person. That infants themselves are manufacturing items to be distributed to adults who plan for and uh, intend to possess them. That it is acceptable and should be legally facilitated to rent women to gestate these children that are desired, while also keeping supplies of embryonic children uh, in dry ice 
in cryogenic suspended animation awaiting the day that we wish to beckon them into a larger and more active existence or to leave them interminably in their frozen condition or do away with them entirely, whatever consumer dominion may dictate, and so on and on it goes. And all of this to say, uh, what is in play in all of this is nothing less than the meaning of the human person as such. And even if there is a fixed meaning or essence of the human, independent of one's subjective choices or uh, acts of existential self-definition. Okay, that sunny introductory description being registered. Um, what I'd like to discuss now is the way that uh, certain contemporary moves in the law of marriage and family and arguments associated with them proceed in terms of this new and deviant model of human fragmentation. So in the law and legal literature on parent and child, the defining norm of natural kinship is being encroached upon and replaced by norms of intent and function. Once the process of human reproduction is understood as fundamentally contractual and technological, in which sexual union is unnecessary, the filial connections between the child and the adults concerned is of no significance. The categories of male and female, mother and father, thus easily, and we would say necessarily, slide into legal and, ir and relational irrelevance, whatever may be their continuing mechanical importance. Thus do courts now often speak of infants in homes of same-sex couples as their children, and right of same-sex couples conceiving together a child. Now, of course, those phrases previously only referred to male-female unions, which is the only union that can possibly conceive together. Um, but in the new commercial technological frame of reference, for courts and commentators to be writing of same-sex couples conceiving together a child, their child, does make a new kind of sense, for that phrase now does not denote a natural embodied relation of generativity, but rather a joint agreement to commission a non-sexual process of embryo creation that involves no genetic connection to at least one of the parties, and perhaps to either of them. But in any event, whether it does or doesn't is rather beside the point because the relation of parent, just like the phrase conceived together, has been redefined in terms that make the embodied and genetic considerations unimportant. So we should understand that this new use of old words is signaling to us a change in understanding in the normative standard of reproduction, from natural relational to technological intentional. And with that, there's a corresponding change in the meaning of being a parent, from the complementary maternal-paternal roles in procreation to one's intent to exercise technical reproduction and or function in custody arrangements. And this seems to me to account for the new patterns of legal discourse and reasoning. And it's showing up in a number of cases around the country in which automatic parent designation is being applied to persons who would have never received it on the older traditional family law model. Now, a somewhat out of the way but striking example of the employ of this new logic, um, this from a state appellate judge, writing in a case that granted a woman, Susan, paternity, of her female spouse, Kimberly's child. Now, this being something of a trend in, uh, in cases recently. And the judge wrote, in his opinion, partially concurring, partially dissenting from the outcome in the case, he wrote the following, I quote, I also agree that the facts and equitable considerations make a compelling case for Susan to have parenting rights. Let's see what those are. He writes, Susan and Kimberly were a legally married couple when their baby was born. Notice their baby. Not only did they execute a co-parenting agreement in times that were happier between them, but Susan, rather than Kimberly, would have been mother had she been able to conceive through artificial insemination, which would have reversed the present circumstances. Now, this is surely one of the more bracing formulations that I've read applying the new outlook. Conveying the idea that who is the natural mother and who is the child is quite beside the point. It's only fair that both women get to share this child as they both were trying to summon one through artificial insemination and only one of them had success. Dear me. I'm reminded of the concept registered by uh, Nicolas Cage's character as the infertile husband in the comedy film Raising Arizona as he was kidnapping one of the infants of another family's quintuplets. 
and he expressed the idea that he and his wife possessed, that is, and I quote, we thought it unfair that some should have so many while others have so few. Now, the humor there, of course, is in, its, in the criminal dislocation of the idea of fair distribution into the realm of child custody. But I fear that we are entering an era in which the dark humor of that line is going to be missed, at least by our elite class, and instead will be understood as either an un uncontroversial truth or perhaps as a legal principle. For once the androgynous and mechanistic precepts of redefined marriage and children as projects of intention are fully internalized in the law and in the mind of the community, and blood tie connection is deemed irrelevant and thus reasonably forbidden legal consideration in custody assignments, the conquest of abstraction over creation will be complete, which will necessarily usher in a very different form of social organization. I mentioned that courts across the country are now assigning paternity to women at least in a manner of speaking, by giving paternity presumption statutes what those courts call a gender-neutral interpretation. Courts read the statutory terms stating, for example, the husband of the wife giving birth is rebuttably presumed to be the father of the child. And the courts then read that to mean that the female partner of the mother giving birth is the parent of that child. As if the court's de-sexing of irremediably sexed terms reasonably can be called interpreting that statute, as opposed to, say, consigning the statute to the flames and then making a new one in its place. Now, an easier way to pull all of this off and with some additional, at least procedural propriety, is simply to have the legislature itself rewrite the law. And uh, that is indeed the explicit goal of the revised Uniform Parentage Act of 2017, which, as explained by the reporter for the Drafting Commission, was guided by two principles. First, expanding the pathways for recognition of non-biological parentage, and second, to eliminate gender-based, that is, sex-based, discrimination, or excuse me, distinctions. The prior versions of this act from 1973 and 2002 had distinguished between paternity and maternity, but she writes that not only did this distinction erect different rules for men and women, but it also reinforced the notion that some inherent difference exists between mothers and fathers. Horrors. So the revised act takes the position that uh, a person's sex is irrelevant for most of the rules that establish who is to be parent. And so you see that it's getting tricky to even come up with, uh, or to keep up with rather, who or what is a mother or a father, or even whether it makes sense to continue to use those sex designations in the first place on the new account. And here I'd note the now fashionable use by courts and commentators and policymakers of the androgynous word parentage to replace paternity and maternity. And that is exactly the point of the new program. And so I'll finish with this. We are, through law and technological deed, confounding and diminishing in the public mind the categories, the natural categories of mother and father as children are now being brought into existence precisely intending that they be without a mother or a father, those relations having been bought off during the trafficking of their gametes or their gestational services, and the law cooperating with and affirming this at every turn, indeed announcing that this is the requirement of justice and equality, we're getting schooled into a new vision of human nature. Thank you. Great, so we have uh, plenty of time for um, questions, and I think we'll also have plenty of time for answers. Uh, I'll just ask, wait for a microphone to come to you because there are people uh, live streaming this, and this, this video will be archived on the web. Um, tell us who you are, uh, and then make sure your question ends with a question mark. The floor is open. Yes. Um, how are we going to uh, solve the issue we're in divorce is a $50 billion industry. And uh, we have parental alienation and we have child supports that is failing, um, you know, system. My concern is that adding that more, because this is the first time I've ever heard this issue. We do have problems like this here, but 
if you watch the media, they're just focusing on parent separation in the borders. Mm -hmm. So we're not really addressing our home issue. Well, Jeff may have a better answer about kind of the legality of that, but um, the state of the family is not where we are in the United States right now because of gays and lesbians, right? We are here because we accepted the poisonous narrative of the sexual revolution that adult sexual desire should be prioritized above everything else. Um, that, that happened in tandem with the passage of no-fault divorce, and while it's really hard to get statistics on why people divorce, the best guess, the best... Uh, figure I've seen is about 80% divorce, not because of abuse, abandonment, adultery, um, or addiction, right? That most of the time it's because people fall out of love um, or feel they have irreconcilable differences. Um, and so that 20% where there really is a threat um, or a fault, right, there does need to be provision for that. But many of the cases that you just cited and much of the money <laughs> that is going towards that and that's being misused in the cases of divorce could be drastically decreased if we looked at no-fault divorce laws and figured out a way to incentivize and encourage parents to work it out, especially when they have kids. Um, and that's a huge... We've got three categories of stories of kids on our website kids of divorce and abandonment, donor-conceived kids, and kids with gay and lesbian and transgender parents. Um, and numerically, what's happening in our country, the bulk of the kids uh, you know, whose stories we represent are those kids, right? And their lives, and their, their divorce has an incredible impact on a child's physical health, emotional health, ability to keep and maintain relationships, ability to, to find a job and keep a job. Right? They are twice as likely to divorce themselves, and they're much less likely to even marry. And so if we could just take a look at that 80% right, and figure out how to change our laws to incentivize adults to work it out instead of having, as I think Brian says, you know, it's easier to break a contract with your plumber than it is to, you know, or it's easier to get out of your marriage than it is to break a contract with your plumber. We should change that because we're messing with kids' entire lives. One suggestion that I just might add, I, I doubt it's politically feasible anytime soon, but I think it's something to work toward, is, is something relatively small like a mandatory waiting period in cases where there isn't fault. Because again, the studies indicate that when people wait, mm -hmm. they work through their differences. Mm -hmm. But if in the moment of a crisis, of feeling out of love, of lots of things that could be going on in a relationship, they immediately or very relatively quickly move toward divorce, well, then it's over. Um, but if they waited a year or two years, in most cases, they'd get past that crisis point and the relationship would actually deepen and improve significantly. One resource that um, we, we hosted an event here at Heritage about two or three years ago with Alan Hawkins, a, a professor at Brigham Young University, on a um, marriage program that the state of Utah had implemented. It wasn't mandatory, but it's along the lines of what Melissa just described. It was a voluntary program for couples who were about to file for divorce. And it was a voluntary program where they were just teach um, relationship skills, conflict resolution skills. And a lot of the people in this auditorium, you look like you went to college, you probably at some point learned how to live with a roommate, how to resolve conflicts. Only one third of Americans graduate from four-year colleges. That means two thirds don't have that type of background. They might not have simple relationship skills. And what Alan, Professor Hawkins revealed was that Utah was actually very successful at lowering that divorce rate by teaching spouses how to resolve resolvable conflicts, right? So the 80% of couples um, that Katie's describing, many of them want to save their marriages. They just don't know how. Uh, and so I, I believe the book and then the lecture at Heritage was called the Forever Initiative. Um, but if you do a Google search for Alan Hawkins and Heritage, you can watch uh, his lecture. And it, and it was along the lines of what uh, Melissa's saying on a voluntary basis. Other questions? Yes. We'll go to the back row and then we'll go to the front row. Okay. 
tried again. Katie, I'm interested in the same-sex couples that you have um, in your coalition and wonder about um, their, their views on the right to have a child or to create children because that's clearly their unable without some kind of a donor or assisted mm-hmm. reproductive technology. Mm-hmm. And so that bond is already um, broken or never formed. So tell me about them and, and, and how they've come to be part of your efforts. Yeah. So the people who make up our organization are the children who are raised by same-sex couples um, or who have transgender parents, but we also have people who identify as, well, that the world would say is gay or lesbian. They experience same-sex attraction. Most of themselves don't call themselves gay or lesbian. But I will tell you that some of the most um, courageous advocates for children's rights are gay and lesbians who are willing to speak up about this and say, you know, I'm a gay man and I oppose surrogacy. Don't push this in my name. Right. Or, you know, I I experience same sex attraction, um, but I will either not have children or if I choose to have children, it is going to be in a way where a child doesn't have to sacrifice to be in my family. And so I think some of them maybe haven't even answered that question yet, but they just know that whatever's going on in their lives, that it's not worth breaking a child's natural bonds over. And they see the incredible commodification that is not solely due to the redefinition of marriage or the push from the gay lobby, but very much aided by it. And they reject it. Melanie Israel, Heritage Foundation. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts about how new technology, things like Ancestry.com, where you can send in a swab and find out all kinds of things about your genetic history and connections to first, second, third cousins who have also done the same thing. We've already seen that having an impact on people who were conceived by natural means, people finding out there's half-siblings that they didn't know that they had and far-flung relatives being connected. How do you see that technology impacting not just children of those conceived in these donor arrangements, but also people who were the donors themselves and the relatives of these donors and all the complications that can stem from that? I think, first of all, the fact that looking for your ancestors has such wide appeal, I mean, through advanced means that we have now or even through old-fashioned means of doing the family tree and searching and traveling is just a testament to the fact that our ancestry matters to us, right? That our biological roots really do matter to us because they're a part of who we are. Um, and, And I think that there is this tension in our culture where on the one hand, the culture wants to say in the name of sexual liberation and reproductive autonomy, biological ties don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, lots of people are doing all these things that show that biological ties clearly do matter, right? So it's, I mean, and even within reproductive te- technology itself, there's this irony that it's because one parent at least wants a genetically related child that they're then creating a child in a way that separates that child from the other, right, genetic parent. So, you know, e- even there, right, there is this kind of hypocrisy saying, genetics really matters for me because I want my child. But it doesn't matter that much for my child. That sperm donor or egg donor is of no importance to the child. Um, but I also think it means that the idea of donor anonymity is going to be effectively impossible to maintain uh, because there are now all these means to find out what's happening. So it's interesting to to think about how that's going to affect trends, willingness of individuals to donate and really sell effectively eggs or or sperm, knowing that it's going to be much more likely that they'll be discovered. But I I also think it's the case that most individuals, usually college-age students or young professional age um, people who are thinking about donating eggs or sperm, they're often just not even thinking about the future at all. Mm -hmm. And and often these people, when they get older, when they start to have a family themselves and so on and realize, wait, this 
this kid that I now have that I'm raising um, is actually no more my kid in a certain sense than the kids that I may have out there because of my sperm donation or, or egg donation, and that weighs on them too. So, um, so I, I think that a lot of times there's also an issue of just informed consent and maturity involved with regard to the sperm and egg donors who are targeted and themselves commodified uh, in this whole process. So it really is this industry where you know everybody involved right is being treated as a commodity in an, in an area that's so intimate and so important that. Um, you know, should be the last area that we want to bring in the kind of logic of the market. Just to add, the, the commodity um, consideration is one that I, I saw make an um, interesting appearance in the news recently. I don't know if any of you had seen the New York Post story that talked about the woman who had a boy embryo sitting on ice, and she wanted a daughter, or maybe it was the other way around. So she went on social media and said, who wants to trade? I have a boy. I'd like a girl. And so then they started to barter through who should have which and so on and so forth. And she actually used the word. I, I put it down. She said, with respect to this boy she didn't want, uh, now I have a commodity, something I can leverage, which is an interesting way to discuss human life. Mm -hmm. Let me just say that, you know, there's some people on the conservative side who will kind of scratch their head when I talk about what I'm doing. And they're like, I don't, is that something that we really need? I don't know about that. Um, why is it important to defend a child's right to their mother and father? I mean, really what we need to have is parental rights, right? We need to just work on enforcing parental rights. And my answer is, once you abandon that idea that children have a right to their parents, right? Not, not just that I have a right to the children that are born to me, but... But children have a claim on the people who are responsible for their existence. Once you abandon that, children become commodities to be cut and pasted, swapped and traded into any adult relationship. And statistically, that is going to put them at a huge disadvantage. Right? Statistically, they are going to be in homes um, where they are less protected, less attached, um, that, are, that are less permanent, um, because that is the nature of non-biological adults, right? And that is why in the adoption world, we spend decades refining our best practices to vet non-biological parents who want to take on a child who does not have a biological connection to them because social workers recognize that when you are placing a child with an unrelated adult, you are putting them at risk. So you better do your best to make sure that that adult is financially and emotionally ready and have a stable relationship to offer this child what they deserve. So yeah, it's, this, is, this is the thing, right? We have to get this right, defending a child's right to their mother and father. Because if we don't, they really don't have any right in family structure at all. And they can go to uh, the adult who has the most means and can put together sperm, egg, and womb and then walk out of the hospital with them. And I would add that you undermine the foundation of parental rights mm -hmm. if you fail to recognize the flip side of that in parental obligations mm -hmm. to their own biological children. So, so let me offer one thought, and then we'll get to another question here, um, uh, about how both the parental right and duty and the child right and duty uh, can be embodied. It's, when Melissa was speaking, I thought of this. It was four months ago today that my wife gave birth to our son. And so it was two days later that we checked out of the hospital. And when we checked out, we didn't just want to go home with a baby. Right? We wanted to go home with our baby. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy for people to see if, you know, you and your wife are expecting a child, you go to the hospital, you care which baby they send you home with. Can you also see the flip side of that, that the baby might care which parents he or she mm -hmm. is sent home with? And, and that's what Katie and Melissa and Jeff are getting at here is to say that child has uh, already a relationship. Uh, it's a biological relationship, and it should be extended into a social relationship. There were two hands. We'll go um, in the back row in the middle and then in the, the front row in the middle. Hey, Brandon Schultz, Christian Post. Uh, when we are confronting these issues, particularly I'm thinking of artificial reproductive technology, which is a burgeoning industry and it's just it continues to develop. Uh, I am. I think the storytelling tack is a wise one in light of the failures that social conservatives and Christians who have tried to defend marriage and things in the past unsuccessfully. But the bottom line is, is even if you tell heartrending stories, it seems to me that we're going to have to come up against this 
mass selfishness and narcissism that people literally think they have a right. That sexual desire has been centered and valorized and it rules the day. Uh, could you explain a little bit more about sort of what you want to do, Katie, with the storytelling approach and how maybe in our own conversations with people we say, look, because I've tried. I've said, I've talked. Think about these donor-conceived kids who were psychologically tortured. I've shared their stories. Still, it seems like this impenetrable wall over many people's minds in this day and age where, yes, you can appeal to their reason or you can appeal to their subconscious with a story, but I'd like to hear more because uh, it certainly seems like they're, we're up against a real selfish stronghold? That's such a good question, and we're not going to reach everybody. But there's a lot of people that we can reach because most people have never even heard of this. Most people have not understood that children have these fundamental rights. And so that's another reason why Them Before Us is, is doing things differently. In the past, social conservatives have kind of started with, well, this is marriage, and this is what we like, and this is what we're in support of, and at some point trickle down, it has to do with kids. Um, and then the objections also exist up here. Well, yeah, but I want to get married and not have kids. Well, well, not everybody's going to get married, and so why does it have to? No, we start first we start with kids. This is what their rights are. This is what their needs are. And this is what it looks like when we don't defend it. Read their stories. Read their stories. And once you – so you'll see on our social media pages – um, and on our website, we hammer this all the time, right? And if there's a news story that comes in um, that talks about, you know, some celebrity surrogacy, you know, Kardashian something, right? We take that, we reframe it, and we say, no, from the child's perspective. Look at it from the kid's perspective. This is what the kid's losing. So we hammer that over and over and over. Once you get that, once you get children's rights, children's needs, and that their heart breaks, when you get it wrong, and that all of society pays the price when we normalize this mother and fatherlessness, work outward from there. Once you get this, you actually solve all the other problems. Well, what about two women on birth certificates? No. No. Children have the right to be known and loved by both biological parents. Well, what about surrogacy? No. You don't get to deliberately sever the bond between a child and their birth mother. Well, what about third-party reproduction? No. Your desire to have a child does not override their right to be known and loved by both mother and father. Well, what about no-fault divorce? No. Children need a permanent union with both parents, and marriage is the only place, the only institution, where both those rights come together permanently. So it needs to be permanent. So we have spent so much time dealing with all of the symptoms, right? Well, what about birth certificate? Well, how do we deal with adoption, right? Go child-centric, major on children's rights, and all these periphery issues answer themselves. But we have to change the way we talk about this. And here is the good news. In this world where everybody comes from different countries and have different sexual orientations, and we are being divided up by identity groups, we actually have one thing in common. Really, like, probably the last thing that we all have in common. We came from a man and woman, and we either get that we desperately needed both of them and we're so grateful that we had them all our life, or we understand how painful it was to lose one or both. And that is why we're able to build this ridiculous and fabulous coalition of people behind this movement, because we actually have this thing in common. And so this is where we start and we work outward. And we're not going to get everybody, but we start with humanizing the child through their stories, we back it up with the best damn social science that we can find, and we've got it all. We've got it all when you're talking about stats and studies. We have the best. We lead with story. We follow a study. And, and I really do think that this is what can change hearts and minds. Okay, we have time for one last question. It's going to be up here. Hi, I'm Jim Mason with Homeschool Legal Defense Association and Parental Rights Foundation. Um, Jeff? How, how much traction has the Uniform Parentage Act gotten, in your view, out in the real world? That's part one of the question. And part two is, has there been any um, you know, surveying or polling to see how the ideas embraced by the Uniform Parentage Act have penetrated society? Yeah, good question. I know that uh, last I checked, I believe there were four states that had adopted the UPA uh, Katie's best efforts notwithstanding, Washington State was one of those places. So I think it's Washington and California, maybe Rhode Island, perhaps another one. Um, so I think at this point it's, it's only four states. 
um, that have adopted it. But obviously, the crusade is is engaged in wanting to see this pop up in lots of other places. Um, because, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's sometimes a little more plausible for legislatures to pull this off than for courts to pretend that they're interpreting the law in order to pull this off. Um, your second question related to polling. I don't pay attention to those kinds of things. I can only kind of give you my sense of having looked at the jurisprudence and some of the academic literature, which is um, in a condition that I utterly reprobate because the, con the, the commitments resident there are so... I would say inhuman. Um, I read you that one example, but there are similar kinds of forms of thinking that can be found in lots of cases when this issue is coming up. Essentially what's happening is the law and those who are charged with administering it are attempting to pivot, to take account of these new um, unnatural relationships in which children are finding themselves. And they find that they're incompatible with the traditional family law system. So they're having to concoct something else on the fly in order to accommodate this sort of thing. So rather than sticking with the old model, the natural family model, they're willing to abandon it to conform to the, you know, the new instantiations of the sexual revolution. But it's a real problem in the jurisprudence and the way that the legal academy is looking at these questions. So we are out of time. We do have sandwiches uh, right outside these doors, and uh, you're all invited to join us with that lunch. And please join me in thanking the uh, panelists. All right, let's do this again next week.